This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Travis and Tiffany Bader are both passionate hunters, anglers, foragers, and foodies. They make their livings by sharing their passion with others through their company, Silvercore. Silvercore is Canada's largest company of its kind, providing industry-leading training to all levels of government, private businesses, and the general public. They help their students work and play safely in Canada's great outdoors. In this episode of Anchored, Travis and Tiffany help answer my questions about firearms, air safety, cougars, and more. If you sign up to become a member of Anchored Outdoors, you'll get 50% off your next Silvercore bear safety course. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Brownells. Brownells has been in business since 1939 and is a leader in firearms distribution. But Brownells carries much more than just guns and ammo. They also carry binoculars, rangefinders, survival kits, and countless other tools and products. Right now, they've got an impressive list of scopes available on their site. Precision is important when out in the field, and Brownells can ensure that you're set up for accuracy and efficiency. Find out more at brownells.com. So this is a very long overdue podcast. <laughs> I've been trying to get to you guys forever. Definitely looking forward yeah. to this. It's yeah. been a while, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, because I was going to get you guys when you were in my camp in Smithers, and then 
you know how it goes in the fall. It's just impossible to stick to a schedule. And then I made it to your guys' place and we had a uh, minor emergency. <laughs> minor emergency, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and now here we are. So unfortunately, COVID-19 hit and uh, we're forced to be separated. But with the wonderful thing that is technology nowadays, we are connected and rocking and rolling finally. I'll jump right into it and let people know who you guys are. So Travis and Tiffany Bader, husband, wife, team extraordinaire. A lot of my listeners have seen Tiffany on anchoredoutdoors.com. Tiff, you're the most wonderful person to be contributing. You hunt, you forage, you're a professional chef. Uh, I think I'm just going to start with that. Tiff, what's the story about being a chef who no longer cooks? (laughs) I, my family uh, contributed to that quite a bit. So I got I got into cooking. Um, I always loved food. I always loved cooking. I spent my summers back east in Nova Scotia with my grandparents who were just all about food, uh, recognizing where food is all around us, foraging and fishing and all those things. And it really fostered a really lifelong love for food. And also, I think, for the ability to show people that you care through the food that you provide for them. So after meandering a bit through different jobs and school and all the rest, I finished my degree and then decided that I did not want to be a sociologist or any other career that that would (laughs) lead to. (laughs) And I started working in restaurants and then things started getting more serious with Travis and Silvercore and the business and had kids. And then the, draw of driving in downtown Vancouver, super long days, low pay, just didn't really seem to be more important and better and more fulfilling than, you know, spending time with my kids and my husband and helping grow the business. So that's why I'm not not cooking every day in a restaurant. And and I've found now that I'm I'm able to combine, you know, working with Travis and and my love for cooking and and foraging and all that kind of stuff all, all back together. Okay. This is really exciting because I feel like I know you guys so well, but then in hearing you speak, I realize I don't know you at all. So <laughs> let's start with, um, what is silver core? And then I'm going to come back to your timeline, but let's just start with what silver core your guys's business and your company. What is it? So Silvercore, I came up with the name Silvercore after my grandfather, Silver Armino, and my other grandfather, Cornelius Bader. Silver Armino, he was a Vancouver police detective, and Cornelius Bader was an entrepreneur. He owned Bader's Dutch Bakery. They made cookies and owned a, I think it was a city block and a half worth of bakeries down in what's now Commercial Drive, right close to the Croatian Cultural Center in Vancouver. And it was ever since a kid, I always had those two names. I figured, you know, if I took those two things together, I'd make a pretty neat business name. And when I always have always been sort of entrepreneurial minded, and when it came down to actually naming the company Silvercore, I came up with that. So what what we do is training predominantly. I started doing the uh, the basis of the business when I was in high school. So that was around 1994, and I started doing training for just the general public in firearm safety course and handling of firearms. So in Canada, if you want to own a firearm, you've got to get a firearms license, and there's mandatory training that happens before that. So that's I started with that, and always interested in things that go bang, 
I thought, well, maybe I learn how to work on these as well and started doing gunsmithing and uh, had some uh, sort of informal gunsmithing education and began accepting work from the general public. Everyone and their dog who came in with a different type of problem or firearm and the answer was always, yep, not a problem. I can figure it out. I can do it, right? And I did. I was doing bluing and parkerizing, cutting, crowning, chambering, threading, uh, bedding, uh, accurizing, sort of the whole nine yards with firearms. And uh, it didn't take too long with that to realize that doing gunsmithing for the general public is never really going to put food on the table in, in a meaningful way. And I, then I, I reached out to, so I was 18 years old at the time and I was working for an armored car company. And of course they've all got, uh, firearms in there. And I, I spoke with them and I said, well, who's, who's working on your guns? Who's fixing them? What do you mean? So, well, you get service maintenance programs for your, for your vehicles. What, what kind of records do you have for the firearms? I said, well, are you able to work on them? Yeah, absolutely. Not a problem. Right. So quickly figured out how to do that and started doing gunsmithing for armored car companies in BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, and I realized, you know, this is probably a better way to go than doing one of for all the different people that come in. These guys all operate on the same platform. There are, they pay their bills and little by little started learning the world of business through the school of hard knocks. And we've sort of progressed to, to where we are now. Wait, okay, so this was in 1994, did you say? Yes. Oh my gosh, I didn't realize that this went back so far. So 94, I started doing the training. And shortly out of high school, I started a sole proprietorship. And by 2003, I thought, okay, let's, it's time to incorporate. I had no idea what that meant. I just figured incorporating <laughs> sounded cool. And it sounded important. It's what gr- grownups <laughs> do, right? Yeah. Totally. Totally. I'm a businessman. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I because uh, because now we just need to make it clear to people: you guys do the government training programs as well, right? Like you guys are the hot dog, the top dogs. We do government training programs. We are we're the largest of our kind in Canada. So I don't know if uh, what kind of a top dog that makes you. I mean, you're it's not the. Uh, Massive industry, but uh, of what the industry is, yes, we are the uh, largest in the training industry. I don't know of any other business in Canada that does what we do. And since incorporating and sort of forging that path, we have seen some other businesses pop up, which is which is cool and it's flattering. And uh, we're still striving forward and looking at uh, new ventures and avenues and places that we can take it. So it's it's exciting. Yeah, it's super exciting. Okay, so talk to me about Tiffany then. When Tiff, when did you come on? Uh, I've always sort of been in the background. You know, Travis would give me a shoebox full of receipts and say, hey, can you enter these for the uh, accountant and, and kind of helping him and, and doing a few things along the way. I came on more full time after my son was born, so about 11 years ago. So since that time. Okay, but this this is... This is my nosy way of asking, when did you guys start dating? <laughs> oh, it's a long time before that. Uh, I was 20. Uh, so 20, oh God, almost 22 years ago. Okay. So really we, you've been yeah. there from the beginning. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Right, right from the get-go. And, and really, when Tiff says that she came in about 11 years ago, there would be no silver core if she wasn't working at the restaurants and making the money. I was just making enough money to be able to pay my half of the rent and my half of the food oh, bills. And, okay. and that was it. Every, every hour, every minute of the day was spent trying to figure out what, how is this going to be a business? How does it make money? And I arrived at a formula a long time ago, which I don't know if it's... Uh, the smartest formula, but it seems to be working. This is amazing. Okay, so Tiff was really paying the bills while you were getting this up and running or getting Silvercore up and running. And then eventually, Tiffany, you were able to leave chefing to come into Silvercore full time. And both of you guys made it what it is today. Yeah, eventually it got to a point where it just didn't make sense to pay to put the kids in daycare, go work all day. It just, it made much more sense just to sort of combine everything, work together, work towards one goal as a family and, you know, work those long hours and sacrifice, but just for the company business instead. Okay. I have, I have such a bit, I just, my, my picture on you guys is so much more broad now. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, let's dive into some of the really nitty gritty. Uh, I love that you guys teach courses because, uh, well, the, you, you teach more than just firearms, just for people listening. You also teach bear safety. What else do you guys teach? Uh, firearms is a big part of it, but uh, use of force would be another side. So anybody who's looking to carry a firearm to defend their life or life of a third party from death or grievous bodily harm is going to be required to have a certain level of training in order to be able to uh, use judicious force. So we we do the use of force training. We do hunter education training. We do work with the province of BC through the BC Wildlife Federation in providing uh, hunter education online training. So it's an extra option for studying and for uh, people to be able to, especially now during the uh, the COVID times, to be able to get their training they required without having to be crammed into a classroom. And uh, of course, on the bear side as well, that was a uh, that was a fun one. That's an interesting side. Always uh, having a background growing up in the outdoors, spending a lot of time out fishing and hunting and being around bears and knowing about firearms. I was contacted by some government agencies some many years ago to put together a training program for them, and I said, "Well, you know, I know the firearm side." I wouldn't call myself an expert in bears. Maybe I can reach out to people who are experts. And it was a common tactic that I'd use all growing up. I mean, I remember a book report I had to do in, I think it was grade grade 10 or grade 11. It was on uh, Shoeless Joe, written by W.P. Kinsella. And I left it all to the last moment. And I thought, why don't I just phone the author up? And I'll get all the answers to the book report. Phone the author up, did my book report that way. Similar sort of thing. I thought, well... Who's an expert on bears that I can reach out to? And so I reached out to a couple. And one was Stephen Herrero, and he's written many books on the topic. And the other was Gary Shelton. And by some interesting coincidence, uh, there's a family connection between Tiff and Gary Shelton. Yeah, so he (laughs) is sort of a surrogate father to my cousins. He lives right next door to my aunt. He's like world-renowned bear expert, for especially he's... um, 
lived in Bella Coola, wrote a number of books, and um, he worked with us and helped us develop our, our bear program. Yeah, I guess those are the the, yeah, okay. the crux of the business would be uh, armor work, firearms repair and maintenance for uh, government agencies, uh, law enforcement. We do some extended work for in private security, uh, online training, in-person training that we do for uh, we do work with uh, parks and Ministry of Forests and extended work through DFO. And then there's the club. We've got a federal club through all of Canada. And it's a uh, started out as the Silver Core Gun Club, which is now we call it the Silver Core Club because we're expanding it to reach to a larger audience than just gun people and bring in more value to the, uh, to the to all of our members. Yeah, awesome. Well, let me drive it. Let me just dive into some big questions I've got for you about firearms. Sure. Now, I admittedly do not know a lot about firearms. I'm, I have my license through a course like what actually I probably ended up taking courses through you guys when I got all my licensing. It's been a while, so I don't remember. But, <laughs> you know, I just remember there being a lot of things that I was kind of curious about. Like, why? One of the number one questions I get from my American friends is, you know, obviously everybody in Canada carries a gun around Northern BC because of bears. And I have to explain that it's not like America. You can't just walk around packing guns. What are the, this is a really open and loaded question that we'll just strategically pick <laughs> through. But for someone listening in America right now, can you explain the basic general differences between owning a gun in America and owning a gun in Canada? Just to kind of put to rest the misconception that we all carry guns in Northern BC. <laughs> I guess the biggest thing would be that in the States, every state will have different rules and regulations pertaining to firearms and firearms ownership. And in Canada, it's federal. So all across Canada, we've got the same set of rules. For the people listening in the States, we've got three classifications, non-restricted, restricted, and prohibited. And non-restricted is typically going to be rifles and shotguns. Restricted, typically going to be handguns. And prohibited are the ones that they say eh, you can't have. Mind you, if you had it before a certain date, we'll grandfather you so some people can have it. And it gets really kind of convoluted. Uh, the prohibited list grows, on, it seems, on a daily basis with some recent news last, well, just a few days ago here on uh, some new prohibitions that came down the pipe. I think it was about 1,500. Wait, but like what? What would be a prohibited firearm? <laughs> like obviously machine guns, but like what, what happened the other day? Well, a prohibited firearm is something, it's a general term. So basically they say, ah, you're not allowed to have it. So if a machine gun, sure, they, they call those prohibited, anything that's going to be a full auto fire. But there are people that can own prohibited firearms. Like a number of years ago, they made, they, the Canadian government made 25 and 32 caliber handguns with, or any handgun with a barrel of 105 millimeters or less. And they said, we're going to make those prohibited. And one side said they did that because, hey, they're small and they're easy to conceal and they call them Saturday night specials. And so we'll just get rid of all these guns, these bad sort of criminal type guns off the street. Another side says, well, you know, there's there's a lot of inexpensive 32 and 25 caliber short barrel handguns. In fact, they account for about half or more than half of all the registered firearms in Canada. What better way to get rid of all of them in one fell swoop than to make that classification. So they made that classification and people squawked and they said, hold on a second. 
I own it. You can't just take my guns away from me. You're going to have to pay something. And there's so many out there. The government came back and says, tell you what, you guys own it. You keep it. And you can trade amongst each other. You can grow your collection all you wish. But when you die, we get them. And essentially, that's there's more to it. And it's a little bit more nuanced. But they figured, you know, over time, we'll prohibit those ones. So just last Friday, we had an announcement that uh, essentially, as the, the government put it, uh, assault-type firearms are now being prohibited. And uh, we just got an email today from Ed Burlew. He's a, a lawyer for the uh, Canadian Shooting Sports Association, and he drafted an opinion based on the new prohibition. And they have anything that's 20 millimeters or greater bore diameter, which every 12-gauge shotgun with its choke removed basically comes into. So now there's a legal opinion saying they just prohibited all 12-gauge shotguns and 10-gauge shotguns as well. So it's it's a uh, when the Americans look at Canada and they say, "Holy crow! I can't believe you guys uh, and, and your crazy gun laws." And Canada will look at some of the states and say the same sort of thing. It's 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 a difficult discussion to have because it's very often emotionally charged. Well, what that was my next question. I know that some time back in Australia, and it's a very depressing story, so I, I urge people to only look this story up if they have to. In uh, Tasmania, there had been a mass shooting, and they ended up making everybody turn in their firearms. It was just like a major change across the continent. Did did something happen? Is this related to the the shooting that we had back east uh, last week? You know, that, uh, that goofball back east there, I'm sure I probably highlighted it for the, or set the political landscape, but it, it's something that's been in the works for some time. It's It's been something that's been... The, the Liberals have been saying they've been planning to do this for quite, quite a while. COVID-19 really put a stop to it. And I know they were getting a lot of heat from anti-gun people that... COVID-19 definitely slowed down their process, but last Friday, they, it was a less, people feel it was less democratic. They kind of pushed it through, through order and council to, to make it happen. So, gotcha. And, Did, and, and it's probably in relation to what happened to Nova Scotia, or at least you're using it as an excuse to do that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Did we ever have a, a situation like that in our history where there was something devastating and it resulted in all firearms being banned or, you know, turned in. Would you say our history, you mean Canadian or Australian? Yeah. No, Canadian history. I'm Canadian, man. I live past, <laughs> I live in Australia, but I'm Canadian through and through. <laughs> I love it. Um, you know, there, there, yes, obviously the, uh, there's uh, been a number of events that have happened that have uh, led to greater restrictions on firearms ownership. And I think the Polytechnic Massacre is going to be one of them that's, uh, that's highlighted. It's, uh, I still, being in the industry for so many years, still find it difficult to find sense in it. And I still have to be very, very uh, conscious of the fact that it is such an emotionally charged topic that people are going to have polarizing opinions on it. You're going to have the not from my cold dead hands group. And then you're going to have the ones that said, you know, if there were no guns, there'd never be any crime with guns. Right. Just like if there are no drugs or won't be any drug addicts or, I mean, the logic is flawed, but the sentiment is, uh, 
is difficult to to argue with. So I, I tend to uh, I, I have a difficult time trying to wrap my head around any sort of logic on these things. And when I look at the current situation, it sure seems a heck of a lot like trying to earn political points over anything that's going to have any sort of efficacy or dent in supposed uh, misuse of firearms. And I don't know enough about the politics, but I, I know I know enough to know that I, this topic will bury me and to be very careful on where I step with <laughs> yes. it because because I just yes. am simply ignorant and I'm, I'm genuinely trying to learn more. And I'm so lucky to have you guys as friends. I definitely have got a lot of questions about the politics. I don't feel like this is the right platform right now to no. go through that, uh, but we will have a conversation the next time I see you guys in person. Uh, sorry, Absolutely. everybody listening. I love you guys, but that is like a whole different can. But here's a question I have for you. I really wanted to get a handgun because when I'm up north in my, on my property, I wanted to be able to have something handy. I walk around with the Defender, and um, and obviously it's just bear safety. And, and, and a lot of the time, it's, I, I don't even want to shoot a bear. I just want to be safe if I encounter one or be able to somehow deter it. And I, we'll talk about bear spray and all that stuff later. But um, I had looked into getting a restricted firearm and was really shocked to find out that the only way that I could get a restricted firearm is if I could prove that I was using it to take it um, to a range for like training for a competition. I couldn't just walk right. around my front yard in remote BC with it in my, in a holster. Does that, can you explain all of that to me, how that works with restricted firearms? So with the three classifications, non-restricted, restricted, prohibited, typically non-restricted means, Hey, they're a gun. You can own them. There's no restrictions over the years. More and more restrictions are placed on them, but they're still called a non-restricted firearm. Yeah. And I'm going to cut you off there just so people listening understand non-restrictive still means it. I think it took me like six months to end up getting my actual license. I couldn't just go into a store and, and buy one. It was still very, very structured and, and rigid and, and strict. Right. There's training, there's courses you have to take that you have to show practical handling skills. And then there's Criminal record checks, mandatory minimum waiting periods, 28 days. They'll just sit on your application before even looking at it. Yeah, you couldn't be going through a divorce. You couldn't have any history of mental health. What were the other things? There were some really, there were some, like, there's some pretty serious stuff on there. Is that right? If If you're divorced or going through a divorce, you can't have one? If you've been subject to a peace bond or protection order, if you're, they want to know your spouse's name or somebody who you've lived with in a common law sort of arrangement within the last X amount of years and... So they'll speak with them to see, like, are you of sound mind? And you need references, people who can uh, give you a positive reference. And those conditions have changed a little bit over the years. Used to be, it had to be like a doctor or a a lawyer or some sort of a professional that you use as a reference. But it's not a it's not an overnight process of getting a firearm. That's just for a hunting rifle or a hunting shotgun. So that's your non restricted restricted. Handguns, typically, what you're looking at there, they say, sure, you can own them, but there's going to be some further restrictions on these things. You're going to have different rules for how you lock them up and store them. You're going to have different rules for how you transport them. And you can only take them to and from approved locations. And those restrictions that they place on them are what prevent an individual from taking their handgun out into the bush and shooting it because it's not necessarily 
an approved location. Now, in the world of firearms, like in the world of anything, it's not all black and white and there's exceptions to everything. But people who are working as um, working in a remote wilderness area and they can't carry a firearm like a shotgun or a rifle and they have to be able to demonstrate that they can't carry that and they have to demonstrate a need for it. And they've gone further to say you have to demonstrate that working is not just, oh, I'm working on my cabin. I'm actually employed somewhere. Right? Yes, I tried applying for that through forest, forestry. And they were like, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> so there are exceptions. And people can carry handguns out in the bush. And they're used for predator protection. There are even smaller exceptions in law that people can carry a handgun for protection of their life. If there's an imminent threat, there's something, police protection is not adequate and the, yours of a viable threat to their life. Mind you, I've seen people over the years who have very valid cases. We deal with uh, judges and doctors and people in professional capacities who find themselves in situations where they're receiving death threats and, I've also seen it come back where they put that application through and the firearms program says, yeah, not a problem. The rules are there. They allow for it. You just have to get the chief of police in your area to sign this document that uh, they're unable to protect you. Oh, uh, okay. I, I, I don't know what uh, what police force will want to turn around and or what chief will want to sign. Oh, yeah, no, our, our protection is not adequate for this individual. So it's... When we say there are allowances, they're almost illusory. Yeah, that's that's but that's kind of what I was thinking. I just I know that a lot of my American friends are just dumbfounded when I tell them about all of these laws and clauses. Mind you, the American friends might be interested to know that we can actually buy firearms on the internet and have them shipped to us without having to go through an FFL dealer or anything else. So each side has. Uh, different laws, weird laws. There's some firearms that we can have in Canada that can't be had in the States. It's uh, it's not a logical, rational discussion. It's emotion-based, it's political-based. Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely feeling the political-based side of things. <laughs> yes. Um, for, me, for me personally, not that it matters or like anyone cares, but I like that we're so strict with it. I like that they make you wait before you get it. I really liked having to go through all the loopholes because it makes me feel people are really having to think before diving into making a purchase, but that's just that's just me. Um, I'd like to talk to you guys about something a little more interesting in my world anyway, and that's bear safety, if you're okay with that. Let's talk about yeah. bears. Okay. Am I wrong in thinking that I would be able to react quicker with a handgun than lugging along that big defender of mine? You know, that's the... That's the age-old debate. And when it comes down to looking at statistics for bears and encounters, I've seen it argued on both sides. I've seen the statistics used in a few different ways. But essentially what it comes down to is the individual's training. From everything that we've looked at, it comes down to the individual's ability to use whatever their defensive mechanism is going to be. And in the case of firearms, uh, there's likely a number of instances where people will overestimate their own abilities and, and use of that firearm and they figure out it's just like hunting and a bear encounter is not just like hunting it's not typically something that you plan for and set up for and you're waiting for and in those cases bear spray something that's point and click bring it out spray and pray is has been proven to be very effective 
And people will say, well, hold on a second, a dedicated, determined bear that's going after you, a, a, an actual attack where they're, they're not just passively acquiescing and walking by and this is a, a predatory attack, uh, bear spray is not going to be as effective as, uh, as a bullet. And that's correct. They're true. And a bullet will be more effective if you're able to do one of two things. So you're, if you're going to be putting down an animal, you're going to, with a firearm, going to be interrupting the CNS, the central nervous system, and that's going to be through a brain or spine shot. If you can affect that, the threat stopped, bears down. The other way that you can do that is by um, introducing hypovolemic shock through massive cardiopulmonary decompression, and that's done by popping holes in it. And the more holes, the faster. So that's the secondary way that you put it, put it down. Obviously, any animal with a fully oxygenated heart is still able to, even if that heart is destroyed and blown out of the animal, is still able to survive and live some time longer and do damage. So, <laughs> Sorry, you can so, see my face. I'm just going, Ugh. It's just so scary. I've got this horrible vision of being forced to shoot a bear, which obviously I don't want to. I love bears, but if I had to, I would. Right. And I've got this horrible vision of like shooting it in the head. And my dad always said the, my parents are super anti-gun by the way. And I remember right. my dad being like, the bullet will just bounce off of its head anyway. And I've had nightmares as a kid of these, of shooting a bear and having its brain or its heart blow up and it's still coming after me. Are you saying that's like a real thing? <laughs> Oh, that's a real thing. I mean, in the in the two in the in the two legged world, in the two legged world, they talk about. I think Magliato came out and he had a did a study about um, how far a person can actually continue an attack, even if they're uh, they've received a fatal wound, even if their heart's completely blown out. What? And and so and that's a two legged predator. These four legged predators, it's. You're going to encounter the same thing, but the training that we do, well, we do talk about bear spray and we do talk about firearms and we do a fair bit on the in-person training on the use and the effective use of firearms and, and bear spray. Really, anybody who wants to be working or playing in bear country, I, we love bears too, and we don't want to be putting them down or, or shooting them needlessly. So some preventative maintenance is is what we really try to drive home into people. We want people to be aware of the area that they're going into. Maybe maybe get some data if there's a logging or forestry company in there. Talk to other people who've been in the area to uh, see, has there been any bear sightings lately? Has there been any any activity? Like work in pairs if you can, right? Maybe just don't go out there by yourself. Um, show them how to look for bear sign. And how yeah. to assess bear activity. Can I just interrupt you for a second, Travis? Yeah. One of the number one emails I actually get are from Australians who are going to Canada or to Alaska, and they want to talk to me about bear safety. And I, I always feel really bad because I'm like, oh, you don't have a dog, you're screwed. You know, I say that in, in, <laughs> in a nicer, as nice a way as possible. But can you, can we take this as an opportunity to kind of go through bear 101 for somebody who is very seriously unaware of um you know how life works up there what would somebody from australia who's always been looking for snakes and wombats do as soon as they step into um remote alaska what's step number one 
Well, number one is they have to be aware that Alaska actually does have drop bears. (laughs) (laughs) How do you even know about that? (laughs) Come on, doesn't everybody know about them? No, everybody who's listening right now, if you've never heard of a drop bear, Google it. They're the most terrifying, brain-eating bear that you could encounter. There is no safety training for a drop bear. (laughs) Okay, anyway, now that people are Googling drop bears, continue. (laughs) So prior to even setting foot in Alaska, uh, if they are going to be in an area, and bears are everywhere, if they're going to be in an area where they're concerned about bears, having some prior training. So read a book. Maybe maybe read what Gary Shelton has. He's put a couple great books, and he takes a different approach to what Stephen Herrero does. Stephen is less on the firearm side. Gary's was raised as a hunter and he delved further into the firearm side, but both of their research is very valid. And there's other people who stood on their shoulders and have adapted and, and built from there. But there's plenty of good information out on working and playing in bear country. We've got an online course that we have. If they're interested in looking at that, by all means, it's a great, it covers everything that they need to know from the experts on bear identification, bear behavior, bear sign, uh, encounter strategies, avoidance strategies, and it goes over the gamut. So that's that's something they can do. When they arrive, uh, obviously flying with bear spray is uh, is a kind of a no-go in most places. But Right. That's important to make mention of, you know, because you, you land and you don't have it on you. You can't always get it. I, I mean, I know that they can people can take the course to be able to learn a lot of this, but can we cover some of the points from yeah. both of the experts? From, I, from Gary and Steven? Yeah. What are the, what's the major conflicting bit of advice? Like what are, what are the major differences? I, I guess, Tiff, you want to take it? I, I was just going to say one, one overarching point for me that, that we see all the time. We go up to Whistler and you see tourists with their cameras standing on one side of a fence and there's a bear about two feet away just sitting there black bear eating garbage or whatever there seems to be a lack of understanding that these are although sometimes um you know used to humans these are still very wild animals and you should treat them like wild animals although sometimes they come into areas where humans are you should still always understand that they can be unpredictable they're wild and to not walk right up to them. You know, you see it in Jasper, people walking up to the elk and taking pictures of them and getting charged during rut and things like that. Although they're unpredictable and wild, the chance of getting attacked by a bear is still very, very, very remote. I mean, people should be worried about mosquitoes and lightning bolts and dog bites. And A bear attack is incredibly rare, but with some proper training and understanding and appreciation for bears before you go into bear country... You can go a long way in preventing a situation that could cause damage to yourself or potentially cause the death of a bear. I, I guess a big difference between if you're reading through a Herrero book or for, through a Shelton book is the approach that's taken from looking, both of them will look at encounters and they'll analyze them. And I, Shelton tends to take the mindset that people have a right to be in the wild, just like the bears. And when you read to the Herrero encounters, they're quite often at the biggest criticism that I've seen is that people will say they look at what the individual did wrong. What did that person do wrong? And sometimes 
sometimes that person really didn't do anything wrong. Sometimes a bear is just an asshole, right? I mean, bears have personalities. Especially black bears. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> a lot of people come up and they say, well, what's the one thing you should do? Like, what's, what's the one move that's going to win a bar fight? Well, there is no one move. But you know what? Having a general situational awareness, maybe not walking into that bar if you go in and say, hmm, there's a bunch of full patched members that, and all their bikes outside and it sounds like things are getting rowdy. Ah, I think I'll go in there and try my luck, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe we don't go in there. Or maybe if you're in a situation where you can't avoid it and you have to be in there, then you look at ways that you can de-escalate. You can look at signs to... Uh, and this is, we're just talking about two-legged, but it all applies to to bears as well. There is no one move. It's not like, okay, there's a bear, better get on the ground and play dead. Uh, well, that's probably pretty poor advice. Coming up, we cover some of the what-ifs while out in the bush. Again, thank you to Brownells for making this episode possible. I never knew how important optics were until I started hunting. From scopes to rangefinders and binoculars, Brownells is a one-stop shop for hunters of all experience levels. Check them out at brownells.com and keep them in mind when it comes to making your next big purchase. There is some some basic uh, history of bears that, that, that scientists have identified that help you understand in some cases or, or try to get a general idea of where the bear is coming from. I mean, grizzly bears have historically come from wider open environments. Uh, black bears have developed through more densely uh, growing forests. So black bears know how when you're in a situation where you come upon a black bear, a lot of times they'll run away and climb up a tree. Grizzly bears have developed this uh, defensive aggressive response to people, which is why Someone like Stephen Herrera says, if you see a grizzly bear, pretend you're dead. Because if a grizzly bear is like, oh, there's a person over there. They scared the crap out of me. I've got my cubs. I'm going to run at them super, super aggressively, scare the crap out of them uh, and, you know, jump on them and kill them. If you fall down and play dead, sometimes, important part is sometimes, sometimes <laughs> that's enough to switch off that you know, over thousands of years, instinctual response from a grizzly bear. And then the grizzly bear might run away. It might jump on you or swat you a few times. But there are some, you know, when you're getting into understanding bear safety, there are some generalities that you can uh, learn to help guide you when you're, when you're out in the woods. If you see a grizzly bear, how to identify it, uh, certain features on the bear, how it walks, hump on the back, uh, black bears, things like that. And it will lead you to generalities on how the bear might behave if you encounter it. Is it true that grizzlies don't climb? I've never seen a grizzly in a tree. Grizzlies can, grizzlies can climb. Oh, well, that's yeah, horrible. No I, th I always thought can. if I saw a grizzly, I'd just climb a tree. No, no, they can climb no problem. They're big, strong animals. Um, okay. <laughs> but you know what? An another way to think about bears is to think about dogs, right? I mean, you get comfortable around dogs and you start to learn their personalities, but not every dog is going to be the same. And you can't just say, when a dog does this, this is what you have to do, because sometimes you got some a-hole dogs as well. But you can, you can start picking up when you look at their body language. Uh, are they growling at you because they're mad or are they growling at you because they're scared themselves? 
If I start making sudden movements, am I going to scare them further? Or maybe if I just stand here and I stand my ground, is that going to make them kind of calm down a little bit? Uh, jumping to the ground and playing dead, I tell you this much, if I'm ever going to try and take the play dead principle, it would only be because I've already been swatted to the ground to begin with. I'm not going to go down to the ground myself. I'm not gonna, um, but bears tend to display, like Tiffany was saying, they they. They grow up in this uh, aggressive, envi aggressive environment. Essentially, they they show respect back and forth through showing aggression or aggression appeasement, and you can you can watch them. Let's say they're they're dropping their head down. Okay, that's a little bit different. They're turning sideways, turning to face with a direct stare. They're looking right at you. Uh, we've probably you've probably seen out in the rivers or uh, them popping their teeth stomping up and down with their front paws or seeing videos of it, uh, swatting the ground. These are... Yeah, it's not nice. It's ho horrible. I've had to draw my bear spray before and thank God he went away. But like the the snapping the jaw is enough to have nightmares about for the rest of my life. Totally. But that's... And these are aggressive sort of dominant sort of signs that they're putting out and they're, they're giving you a signal. Things aren't cool, right? And, and they found that... There tends to be an inverse relationship to the number of bears and the bear encounters, which is sort of in some ways counterintuitive. But you, if you're in an area where there's a ton of bears, the likelihood of you having an issue with the bear is less than in an area where there's less bears. And I don't, oh. I don't 100% know why that is other than some of the research would indicate if there's lots of bears, it's probably because there's lots of food. If there's lots of food, their aggressive and appeasement sort of personalities say, you know, I, I can sit around and I can swat at all these other bears and play Mr. Dominant. That's a lot of work. Maybe I'll just walk by them and get my food and do my thing. And they, they sort of condition themselves to just kind of being able to be in closer proximity. So if you see a bear at a distance and it sees you at a distance and you're in an area where there have lots of bears, you probably got a good likelihood that you're not going to have a bad encounter. Not always. Yeah. Yeah. I've got to admit, cause I remember one season on the Dean and that's obviously near Bella Coola where, um, who is it, Stephen? Which, which expert lives Gary there Shelby. in Bella Coola? Yeah. Gary. So Gary in Gary's area, it was the weirdest thing. I had a sow and two cubs on one side of me and a sow and some cubs on the other. And neither of them, like everyone was cool, but it wasn't that long after that. That's when that big boar came up behind me and he stood up and chomped at me. And I honestly thought I was going to jump in the river and there was enough space, but I drew my spray just in case I didn't pull the trigger, but I had it drawn apart from that one big male. I felt pretty safe. Uh, with how many there, they just didn't seem to care. Like everybody saw me, but all, none of the mamas seemed to really care. Do you think that's because, because there is so much food or because there were enough bears? A big salmon run going through? Yeah. I mean, there was so much, there was, there was salmon everywhere. They were probably just easier food for them to get than going for you. A lot. Yeah, but no, but I thought they would attack out of, you know, defense. I mean, there's humans here and, and they've got their cubs, but because, you, you know, you always hear that don't run into a mom and her cubs, which is obviously true, but they had their cubs. They saw me and everyone was cool. A, a, a big thing uh, when you read through uh, bear attack 
stories is that it's not so much coming upon a mama bear and her cubs. It's spooking a mama bear. Surprising. It's Mm -hmm. surprising a bear or hungry bears or bears that are um, habituated around people and associate people with food. That's generally where you have problems. Right. What about interior bears? Because then you read about in the States, you know, in in the interior part of North America, and it just feels like those are a totally different breed of grizzly bear. Like they almost sound like man-eating hungry machines. Are you talking about the Maybe ones, they are. Are you talking about the ones in the parks? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, like, remember there was that history, <laughs> there was that night where like two different people were dragged out of their tent the same night and, yeah. oh, it's ter- terrifying. Yeah, I think I think it's I I don't know the details of what specifically you're talking about, but I would guess that it's habituated bears. They they live in these parks. They know when they see an orange tent and they smell the food, it triggers that, oh damn it, I'm hungry and I know there's food inside that thing. So again, if they went out into the wilderness outside of a camp where there's, you know, bears that aren't used to seeing people and making that association, um I I don't know if you would find the same situation. Okay. So it's variable um, depending on the sex of the bear, the location of the bear, the time of the year. There's so many different... The personality of the uh, bear. But The personality of the bear. So no wonder why we can't just say to everybody, this is what you need to oh, do. Yeah. But but let's, let's talk basic. So Joe Blow comes in from Australia. He comes up to Smithers, BC, which you guys were recently at. You can see how berry it is. What is the first thing to look for when they get into the forest? I, if, I, if they go on, I, sorry, I was just going to say I would take a step back before they even step into the forest and make preparations before they do that to prepare themselves. Make sure they have a so if they're bringing food, make sure it's stored properly. Uh, make sure they have bear spray. You know, there's a number of things that you can do before you even step foot into the forest, or a firearm, or whatever the defensive mechanism yeah. is going to be. They decide to step into the forest. Take a look around. Familiarize yourself with your surroundings. If you haven't done a uh, site survey ahead of time, if you haven't got any recent intel from other hikers or people working in the area, then take your time. Familiarize yourself with what the area looks like. If you see tons of bear sign, you see, let's say, scat just everywhere. You see uh, marks all over the trees where they're high marking or or rub trees where they're they're rubbing rubbing all over and you see hair on them. Uh, You're describing my backyard right now. (laughs) Logs. Look for logs that have been ripped apart or rocks that have been overturned or or different diggings. I mean, just tracks. I mean, there's a good sign that it might be everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I found one's den. There was a huge one living on my my property. Yeah, you're saying that. And um, yeah, his den is so cool. But something happened to him. He's gone now. And we've got a smaller bear in there. And he is not well-behaved. And that was one situation where I did want the, the, the gun and I did shoot over him. Um, I'd had enough. I, he was watching Adelaide behind the cabin, right behind the cabin. You've been to my place. He was just on the hill behind the cabin, like 30 feet and he wouldn't go. And I tried with the go, you know, get out of here. I put her in the cabin. He would not leave. Um, I've got a, a target down below. So I shot a few rounds into the target. Didn't go. So I finally had enough and then shot closer to him and then he left. But that to me is a bad bear. I'd say so. And you're saying this is a adolescent bear? Younger? Yeah. Yeah. He's younger. I'm going to, if I was going to go back this year before COVID, I was going to actually take him. Yeah. Get yourself a hunting bear. Because I can't risk it. I just can't risk it with Adelaide. And I, I think bear's tasty. I would, I would eat him. I love bear. Um, 
But you know that one, yeah, if it's done right, it's great. But that one big guy that was there for like five or six years, he was so cool. And we had this, we had this like this arrangement and I we would share Saskatoon berries. I'm serious. Like he lived, he had his den and, and his den was different than his beds, but he had beds by this big, by this huge patch of Saskatoon berries. And like, that was his area. But every once in a while I wanted to make a cobbler and I'd go and get my berries and I'd hear him go, Ugh. you know, and, and he would wait and then I would go and we kind of had this deal and I'd be at the fire and then I'd see him come out and I'd watch him. And honestly, in five years of my husband leaving bacon overnight around the fire, like just so irresponsible, that bear never once came into camp. He was so good. And I don't know what happened to him. Probably old age, honestly. Um, he was huge and all gray and just beautiful, but that adolescent bear is a real problem and a real worry. Um, and then that brings me to my next question. So as a hunter, not a bear hunter, but as a deer hunter, what do I do if I'm staked out on the game trail that the bear and the deer use and that adolescent bear or any bear is coming my way? I really don't know what to do. Do I stand up and go, hey, 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 get out of here? Or do I just sit there and hope he walks by and doesn't notice me? That's a good question. And I think that's the uh, the age-old question that uh, can be debated back and forth, but a lot will come down to what you're feeling at the time and this bear and how they're presenting themselves. So if you're just seeing the thing kind of amble on down and it has no idea you're there and you're thinking, do I just let it keep going? Do I spook it? Like, like what kind of distances are we talking? Like if it's right there on top of you, maybe it's time just to keep your mouth shut and hope the thing goes by. I mean, guaranteed if it's got a whiff of you, these things can smell for miles, right? Uh, yeah. It's spooking them that can quite often be the trigger for an aggressive response. And sometimes it's just like if you come up to a dog and you you spook it and it turns around, bark, 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 or a quick nip, quick bite, and then it's gone, right? It doesn't mm. sound like it's presenting in an aggressive way. If it's far enough back and you're able to say, hey, bear, here I am, right? Give a little bit of a notice and let it see you. Stand your ground and let it, and start reading. Read what is this bear doing? Because you don't want to turn yourself into a prey species for this bear. You don't want to trigger that uh, prey-predator response by running away or freaking out. And if you start mm -hmm. quickly jumping out, shouting and yelling at that bear, you could trigger that response or just a knee-jerk, I'm scared and I'm going to snap at you and then take off. And a bear snap's not going to be any fun. So. No, no, it's not. It's just such a horrible time to have to be unsure about what is the best action to take. That makes me really, I, I always want to have a plan going into a situation and that's one I can't plan for. It's one of the biggest concerns that I have when I'm in, on my yard trying to get a deer is that, that, that bear, and I know his schedule, like it's all patterned on, on cameras, but still just knowing that we could end up crossing paths and not knowing how it's going to go. So you've probably crossed paths with a lot of bears. Oh, he, well, these, on the ones on my property, we cross paths all the time. And a lot of different types of bears. And you've probably never had, aside from that one that you're talking about that uh, was popping its teeth at you, uh, have you had too many close calls? Anything that you'd consider maybe could have gone the other way if you didn't act properly? Well, the difference is, is when I'm fishing, I'm walking out loudly going, hey bear, hey bear, I'm making it clear. Right. But as a relatively new deer hunter who's always done spot and stalking in Australia, 
This whole sitting and staking out is very, very new to me. Only I've only been doing that for a couple years now, and I'm seeing how efficient it is. The, and anyone who watched the Tom Brown webinar recently will remember him saying, you know, just sitting quietly and, and watching how nature kind of forms around you when you're just silent in one spot. And I, I've really noticed that animals will walk right up to me, like feet, a couple feet away from me. Right. And, um, and it, yeah, I, I just, I know at some point if I keep hunting the way I'm, I am hunting so quietly like that, that he's going to walk up on me. And I just, yeah, the big question is, you know, how far away is he when I see him? You're right. What is his behavior? Because I don't want to be like, okay, now you're only 10 feet from me. I'm going to stand up now and tell you to go away. But I don't want him to then step over me and then realize I'm there and decide to give me a, a smack. So it, I've been in that situation. And in those situations... Yeah, what'd you do? You ready your defensive mechanism, whatever that is. If that's going to be a spray, if that's a rock that you have in your hand, because there have been stories of people who've survived bear encounters with a rock they picked up off the ground. I mean, heck, Colin Dowler flew over to his place uh, a few months ago, spoke with him. He fought a grizzly bear off with his pocket knife. What was he, like 120 pounds or something? There's a picture of you two together, it looks like. He is such a great guy. <laughs> and he, his his spirit, his uh, his will yeah. to live is so strong. He, he's, he said his fit fighting weight's 125 pounds. And... In his situation, it sounded like it was a similar type of bear to what you're dealing with. Now, you're dealing with a black bear in your property there, was it? Yeah. yeah. And his was a grizzly bear. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Juvenile. And it basically was testing its luck with him. And it started swatting. He had his bicycle between him and the bear and it swatted some more. And he kept raising it up. And he, at one point, it looked like it was going to walk just right by him. And then it turned around again and started getting into it. And that's that's an interesting story for anybody that wants to hear it. He's I, I actually I did a podcast with him. So that's, oh, good. Uh, what episode number is it? That's a good question. I don't know, but I, I think it's called uh, "Now You're Bleeding Too, Bear." He said, <laughs> he said he doesn't remember if he said anything other than that during the whole encounter. And once he stuck the bear in the neck and he was able to get the pocket knife out while he was in the jaws of the bear. Oh my the, god. The quote, uh, the protracted encounter, he felt such a rush of relief when he stuck the bear in the neck. He saw a gush of blood and he says, now you're bleeding too, bear. Oh. <laughs> so, so like, that's what we're going to call this podcast. Um, I'll include that. In, I'll include that in the notes here. It, you know, it's interesting <laughs> that you should, that, that we're kind of going to um, this part of the conversation because my, for confidentiality reasons, I'll keep her name and her relationship to me quiet, but a very close person in my life is a nurse and she says that uh, they get a ton of bear um, attacks that come into the hospital. Not a ton, okay. but enough to be enough that is concerning because the media is not necessarily covering it. And mm -hmm. one of the big things that she suggests is to have a license to to shoot a, a, a tag for a bear because a lot of the times it, it's brought into question whether or not it's actually an attack, uh, a defenseless attack, or if the person instigated it by hunting that bear and the bear turned on them. And she said a way to just make it clear and easy for the authorities is just to buy a tag anyway. Like I always have a tag on my license so I don't even need to prove to anybody why I took that bear if in case of questioning. Um, so even if, what are your thoughts on that? Even if you're not going to target a bear that you should have one on your license anyway, so that you don't have to explain yourself. You know, I always have a bear tag and if bears are open, it's open season 
and you're out hunting for something else and a bear happens to come by and it's showing a behavior to you that is not lining up with something that you think is going to have a favorable outcome, then it makes your decision easy. Maybe you're going home with bear meat today instead of whatever else you might have been been targeting. But really, the encounters with bears, like you look at a lot of these, uh, even on bear spray and uh, advertisements for defensive mechanisms, and you see this huge snarling Kodiak and big <laughs> jaws and drooling. The likelihood of being in a in an encounter that's going to lead to death or even even a mauling, it's low, but it is scary. Yeah. It's dramatic. And I think it preys on people's primal fears. So, well, we do talk about bear spray and that's going to be your, a less lethal sort of alternative. And we talk about noisemakers. Air horns are great, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would advocate over air horns over top of bear bells because bear bells rely on a bear to be properly conditioned to know what that means, whether that's, hey, it's dinner time or leave you alone. Really, the the idea of bear bells is uh, not something that I've seen borne out across the board as a something that I'd advocate for. I've actually seen someone write that it is an attractant to bears. I, I don't know how true that In is. certain but, areas it is. Yeah. Because they associate it, like, again, with these bears in the states and the parks. Like tourists and food and stuff. Yeah, right? Yeah, but no one likes an air horn. Right, no. No. I mean, unless you're at a hockey game, no one likes an air horn. (laughs) Even then, no one likes an air horn. (laughs) Yeah, no one does. Um, Oh, sorry, go ahead, Travis. I was was just going to say, you're an Alaskan person going into the bush. They've now forearmed themselves with a little bit of knowledge of what to look for in a possible bear sign. Hopefully they're coming out with some sort of a defensive mechanism and it's out of the package in the wrapper. Hopefully they know how to use it, right? How right. do I, I got a shotgun. How do I take it off my shoulder effectively? What carry method should I be using? What type of firearm is going to be the best? And there's a go on any gun forum and you'll see long lists of the best gun for bear defense. Really, before it gets to the firearm, using your head, being aware of the sign, being somewhat aware of bear behavior by watching videos, by uh, taking courses, by you can go on YouTube and see just how bears operate in parks and how they sort of talk to each other by showing that aggressive behavior. The other one will stand its ground. Then after a little while, it'll look at the side and okay, time to leave. People can do the same thing Mm -hmm. because bears don't necessarily equate people as soft targets until they've been trained that people are soft targets. I mean, a porcupine's pretty small, but a bear will find out pretty quick that it's not something that it wants to go after, right? Yeah, it's interesting because I hear people say all the time, oh, it's just a black bear. You know, it's just a black Ooh. bear. But the thing is, is that there's more fatalities from black bears than from grizzlies. There's but- also, what, 10 times more black bears and grizzlies? So, like mathematically speaking, you're going to run into a black bear before a grizzly. Right. And and then therefore there's going to be more attacks. So it makes sense. It's like yeah. people saying shark attacks in Australia are, you know, becoming more, there, there are more shark attacks in Australia, but there are more people than ever in the water. So I don't want to um, dramatize any of the shark 
I mean, any of the um, shock drama here for viewer pleasure, even though it gets exciting talking about all the things that could go wrong. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, rather than, you know, go down that path. Let's talk a little bit about some of the more reasonable head on your shoulder things that people need to know. Um, the difference between grizzlies and blacks is really interesting to me and a little bit confusing. Sometimes I have a hard time telling the difference between a grizzly and a brown black bear. What do I look for besides the hump? Something with the ears, I think I read. Yeah, so black bears have pointier, uh, pointier ears. Uh, grizzly bears tend to be kind of like like cute little round teddy bear ears. Grizzly bears also tend to have more of a, um, they call it a dish shaped face. Uh, they have uh, black bears have more of a Roman style nose as well. Black bears tend to have. Um, almost like a brownish nuzzle on, on like the end of their nose. Black bears often will have a V color or a white V in their chest. What else? Grizzly bears swagger a bit more. They have like the shape of their body is just a little different. It, um, they'll, they'll just, when they walk, they, they sort of sway their back end more than a black bear and black bears tend to walk a bit more stiffly on, on big legs what else? Uh, their claws are different. Grizzly bears have much larger claws than black bears do because grizzly bears will dig and black bears don't tend to dig for their food. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. The grizzly bears are really effective at digging. They'll, they get a fair amount of their food by just digging up different things. Uh, animals that live underground or bugs or whatever. Do they both primarily feed off of uh, off of berries and plants? I mean, I was really surprised to hear just how how little meat makes up a part of a bear's diet. Yeah, I, depending on the time of year, uh, it changes. But I think their diet is roughly 75% uh, vegetation. Yeah, I heard it's somewhere 75, 80. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, I think from what... From what I've read, they're they're pretty similar that way, but they vary depending on where they live or time of year. Heart shaped head? Did I mention that with grizzlies? No, not yet. Yeah, I think that that's another big indicator. Is where are you? Oh, yeah, right. So, are you in an area where it's known to be grizzly bear country or black bear country? So, uh, grizzly bears and black bears will have different uh, geographical ranges, but just. By looking and identifying them, you, you listed off a, a good number of things for people right. to look at. And really, when it comes down to identifying, you're, you're, why are you doing that? You're, you're doing it so you can say, well, I think you're this kind of a bear, and I think this is a way to proper, properly uh, deal with you. And since you can never really apply a one strategy to one species and another strategy to another species, I'd say it's really good to be able to identify the sign, to identify the types of bears. Uh, those are all great things, but getting used to watching the bears and watching the, their behavior and learning some of the telltale signs of, man, that looked really scary what they were doing there, but it wasn't truly an aggressive move on their part when they're standing up on their back legs and their paws in the air and the classic pose that you see on the posters of the, of the bear. Well, they're not going to be attacking me on their back legs. If they want to actually get into an attack, they're going to get on all fours and having a little bit of understanding of the bear's behavior 
I think is a very important thing for people to, to take away. Yep. Absolutely. Do you guys teach cougar safety, like predator safety in general? So that's something we do talk about. Yes. And there, there is some, uh, stuff on the cougars in our online course that we have. It's not something that we get into uh, a great detail on. Uh, bear seems to be what most people want to learn about, but really the, I, I, I can't emphasize enough having some situational awareness, having in your mindset, do some mental role-playing, the what ifs. Like you're, you're saying, what if I'm on the trail and a bear comes up while I'm hunting? Well, what would you do? Because you're, you will respond as you've trained. History has shown that people will default to their lowest level of training, right? They're, whatever they can kind of do the best and get away with, that's what they're going to default to. And if we keep ingraining in, okay, grizzly bear, play dead, and that's what they just bang go to, I think we're doing people a disservice. I think giving them the ability to think and the confidence to be able to understand what they're seeing and interpret the signs of where they're going, uh, if there's going to be bears in the area, the confidence to say, you know what, I've seen enough sign here to say, maybe I'm going to do this hike another day. Maybe I'm going to turn around uh, because it's not, it's not a, the mountain will always be there. The hike will always be there. It's not always a situation where you have to keep pressing on through. So ha having the situational awareness and, and knowledge, I think is uh, less sexy to talk about than uh, using the firearm and uh, using the bear spray at close range. But I think it's a way more important thing to, to emphasize. It is. Um, does bear spray work on cougars? Because I've heard conflicting reports on this. I've heard conflicting reports on this as well. And I haven't uh, researched enough cougar attacks with bear spray to uh, uh, to be able to speak intelligently at, about that at the moment. I can tell you that there are different types of uh, sprays out there and different types of carriants. I do know as a youngster growing up, my father would bring home different types of spray, pepper spray, people spray, and I'd, we'd go in the backyard and my brothers and test out to see which ones work better. And you start by spraying a log or spraying on a leaf. What happens to the leaf? I don't, what are we like eight, nine, 10 years old, right? And spray it on the log and sniff it. Oh, that's pretty bad. Oh. Okay. We'll, we'll spray this one in the air. We'll run into it and we'll sniff it. Right. And some, some come across as a big spray and the spray sure stings your eyes, stings the skin, stings the mouth and many mucous membranes. The mists, although on a, Bear, if you're misting something and you get that back, it's and the range def definitely decreases. But that mist, holy crow, is that ever effective? And I would I would imagine uh, on a cougar, if you're able to do a nice little zero pattern on their uh, on their face with your spray, which is what's typically taught with these oleoresin capsicum type devices, you don't want to keep spraying and spraying and spraying and washing you the propellant, using it to wash away the capsicum. I would imagine that it would do some damage or definitely cause the cougar to think twice. I was fishing years ago in this spot where there was a cougar and I had recently stumbled upon a kill it had just made. Like the meat was still glossy and Colby had been onto it. And anyway, I took my spray out and went to take the, um, the cap off or the little guard out between the yep. trigger. And when I did that, I accidentally bumped just a little bit 
the trigger. <laughs> I can tell you it is the most horrible. I mean, I like just stung for hours. I remember driving, even my hand, because I got some on my hand, it stung. I drove home with my window open, with my hand out the window, trying to put my face out the window. It was horrible, horrible stuff. <laughs> um, here's especially a, if you inhale that, right? Oh, did you, yeah. Did you get it in your lungs? No, no, thank God. Oh. No, just my eyes <laughs> and my skin. Um, is it true that Canada has never had, and I don't expect you guys to know this, but I'm, out of my own curiosity, I'm wondering. We'll make it up if we don't. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> um, has Canada ever had a fatality from a wolf? I know we have recently from a coyote, but what about from a wolf? Has a human ever been killed by a wolf in Canada? I don't know. And I, I heard something about the coyote fatality as well, which is highly, highly unusual. Yeah, it was weird. She was a jazz musician. It's so sad back east. And two of them had got her a night before she performed. It was really, really, really devastating. Jeez. Yeah, but I, I, remember, I remember that and then watching the gray. And I get really, really, I'm one of those crazy people. Charles hates it. But I get, I'll hear about an attack and then I'll spend like 12 hours on Wikipedia until I memorize every victim's name. And like, I'll watch. <laughs> Watch the gray and then pause it every five minutes to Google things about India and Asia. Anyway, I'm insane. But um, I remember years ago reading that there had never been a fatality uh, on a human from a wolf in, I think, even North America. And I was just wondering if there was, if you guys knew anything about wolves. Like, I've always had it in my head that I'd see, you know, as a kid, I always envisioned and fantasized about running into a pack of wolves and they would take me in as one of their own and we'd sing together on the hillside. Um, <laughs> but would they actually just rip me to shreds? What do you do if you well, see a wolf? That's a very good question. I would imagine that uh, it would, wouldn't be too dissimilar than dealing with a pack of dogs because wolves hunt in packs. And you would probably want to deal with it in a, in a similar circumstance. I can't say I've ever had I've, to deal with. I've never seen a whole pack of dogs before either. Aside <laughs> from dog walkers. <laughs> I, I don't know what I do. That's a good question. You know what? I'm going to Google when I, when I finish this up. Yeah. Yeah. What me to, too. What to do. I'll turn psycho again for know. another 12 hours. Yeah. Well, it's funny. <laughs> I was up on um, Upper Copper and ran into a whole pack of wolves. It was super cool. They were all different colors and they were across the river from us. It was just me and Colby fishing. And he knew to keep his mouth shut. And he and I both very quietly sat because we were not far away. They did not know we were there. And Colby didn't say anything. He kind of low growl, did a low growl, but he, we both just stayed very quiet and watched them. It was really, really interesting watching them play together. But it's almost like Colby knew that it was a dangerous scenario and he needed to just stay quiet. No kidding. Wow. But then I've had really weird scenarios. Like I've been, I remember driving. It was amazing. And I remember driving once I was up in Williams Lake area and actually I got lost trying to find Gustafson Lake and found a coyote and uh, ended up sitting on the hill and literally singing to it. And it sat beside me for like five feet away and just sat with me while I sung. So, yeah. I mean, I just, yeah, I guess it's another, maybe coyotes and, and wolves. <laughs> don't judge me. What you don't you know me. I don't, I don't remember. I would have been 20. I would have been in my early twenties. So God only know it was probably like Kareem Bailey Ray or something that was on, or like Jill Scott or something in my playlist back then. Oh, nice. Nice. But uh, yeah, I just remember being like, yourself. this is amazing. I could, uh, you know, if I run into a pack of wolves, this is what I'm going to do. But, um, but then, yeah, I just always wonder if, if wolves are not a dangerous animal, if you guys had any information on that. 
I don't, but I'm making a note right now about singing to coyotes. And okay, okay, okay. I was also the, the little girl. Verse. I was also the little girl who used to ride in a bus with my mom, or like with whoever I was with, and or like a SkyTrain, and really, really, genuinely believe that if I started singing a song, that all of a sudden everybody in that train would start singing with me and like playing <laughs> percussion and playing, you know, drums on the seats of the of the train. So like, I think so I annoying kid in the back. Hey, I think I had way. these fairy. I think I had these like Disneyland fairy tale vibes about what reality in the world was like. Uh, that oh, carried carried over. Like <laughs> You're one of those tourists who gets really close to the black bear. <laughs> Just gonna pet it. Oh, no, no, but I, I always no. wanted to be that tourist. But my parents were smarter, smarter yeah. than that. But um, but yeah, okay. So we'll have to Google that. Uh, so you guys, something that you'd be able to speak on. Uh, with authority is safety with storage. I know that I was all gung ho about getting guns. Uh, in the house because I know I'm responsible. I know Charles is responsible. And then we had a baby and I went, yeah, no, I don't, I no longer want a restricted firearm. I don't even know if I want an unrestricted firearm. Like my whole view changed and I'm still a little bit uneasy about having guns in the house. Can you talk to me about the best way to responsibly have guns, even though you have kids? And let me just start off by saying, I've got a friend who thank God is still alive. But when he was, I think he was 10 or 11, he got into his parents' storage and it was, I believe the gun was safely stored, but obviously not well enough. And he shot himself in the stomach by accident and almost died. And that for for me really, really, really threw me. Is it possible to safely store your firearms with kids in the house Uh, or should we just not have them in the house with kids? I guess it's like saying, how do you safely store your car at the house without your kid getting in there and, and, trying to drive it. I had a buddy who at was it four years old, decided to uh, get into his parents' vehicle and roll it down the driveway and gotten a little bit of a, a fender bender. But when it comes down to the storage of firearms, I think the number one thing that most people should look at is educating everybody in the household about how to be safe around whatever it is, whether it's the lawnmower, the kitchen knives, the the firearms. If you let Hollywood be the great educator. It's only going to instill an intrigue in these firearms. And then you double that up by hiding them away and making them some secret thing that no one can touch. I think you're naturally inviting curiosity. Kids will want to get in and try and see what this is about. But if you make this as a normal everyday thing, I don't think Adelaide's going to have a burning desire to go in and sneak in and check out all your fishing rods because it's normal. She sees them all the time, right? <laughs> but, you, but what if it goes the opposite way? Like, what if she sees, what if she gets this false sense of security and she thinks that she's an expert on guns and, and she's not? Does it instill a false sense of security? The greatest number of uh, safety infractions that I've ever seen from people has always been in people who should know better. And you're talking about this false sense of security. So part of that is instilling the fact that they can, firearms can be very dangerous. A knife can be very dangerous. We don't get complacent when we're using a knife. If we do, we cut ourselves. We don't get complacent when we're using a firearm because the results of that can be devastating. So adhering to Jeff Cooper, he, uh, he brought up his vital four, right? All firearms are loaded. Well, Canada went and took that and they made it A of the Vital Four Acts, which is assume all firearms are loaded, right? 
Uh, Canada says C, control the muzzle direction at all the times. T, trigger finger must be kept off the trigger, fingers off the trigger. S, see that the firearm's unloaded. And that closely follows what Cooper put together, just not with the same acronym. But if you can instill that sort of training in the household and then go on top of that, trigger locks are cheap and easy. And I know there's certain states and people will say, well, hold on a second. I need to be able to get my firearm out right away if the what-if scenario. It all comes down to everybody's comfort level, their background, what their home life is. But I, I think, yes, storing things properly is an effective way. It doesn't cost a heck of a lot if you're spending all of this money to get a uh, nice optics and a, a nice firearm and slings and ammunition and all the stuff, all the accoutrement that goes with that. Spend a couple of dollars, get a trigger lock, buy a gun safe. But none of those, the safes and the locks will do you any good if you have curious eyes and hands that are trying to get into it that just don't know how to properly respect whatever it is, the knives, the firearms, the, the car in the driveway. So I think having the training is definitely a part of the whole safe storage of firearms in the house. Do you guys offer a youth program? I'm just I'm just imagining the shitstorm that would ensue if you offered <laughs> a children's firearm safety course. But seriously, do you guys offer that? You know what? In the America, in the states, they got the Eddie Eagle program. Stop! Don't touch! Tell an adult! Right? They got this this good program. I coached. Um, years ago, I thought, uh, you know, I'm going to try out for uh, the local police department. I need some volunteer hours. So I volunteered my time coaching a, um, a junior team who went on to compete internationally, compete in Bisley, England in uh, marksmanship. And we have put together youth programs for scouting groups, for cadets, for uh, uh, church groups. Uh, but we don't, it's not something that uh, we offer on a regular basis. People have asked it and we have put it together. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Very interesting. But it, that that course would be more about uh, firearm safety as opposed to like, this is a lever action firearm or this is like that kind of thing. Just general safety and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny to me. People are either really, really for or really, really against it. I've got a family member who is so against it that the conversation, the conversation just can't even come up. And, and my point is, yeah, but wouldn't you just rather know how to use it? Like you don't need to own one, but wouldn't you just want to know how to use it? And he's like, he is actually against the idea of learning how to use it. And I can't wrap my head around it. If I'm ever in a scenario I don't know. I just can't see why you wouldn't want to know how to operate any tool of any of any sort. So I, I, under, I understand the opinions vary, and, and this might be something I'll have to circle back to later once I wrap my head around some more opinions, I guess. It's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I grew up in a house where it was five daughters, my dad and my mom, and firearms and hunting, that kind of thing, just wasn't wasn't part of our life. And when I met Travis, I'm like, I don't know, I, these firearms, I just, I, I was, I, it was very, like, my family's very liberal. Um, like, you know, we didn't approve. And over time, and seeing how Travis uh, was around them, I, it was a slow process. It was really literally years before I, I was comfortable. But, but, but it's amazing what a global pandemic will do 
to people's mindsets because that same family. Yeah. Hey, yeah. My mom called up and said, Hey, can Travis get me a gun? And then I said, Hell no. No. <laughs> one, one, he would never do that. And two, never in a million years would should anyone let my mother have a gun? Like, <laughs> I don't care how much education there's some people that like, no, 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 not a good, not a good idea. Yeah. Do you think that this it, is going to change things, this COVID? I mean, it's been pretty civil. Oh, it it's is. been a few months now. And I remember we discussed all of this a, a while back personally when this, when COVID was new and everybody was like, are there going to be riots? I feel like, I feel like everyone's got their head wrapped around things now. Um, but do you think that COVID is going to change people's opinions on owning guns now that they've now that they've just kind of tasted the fear of what if and what could happen? I, I think I think it's sparked an awareness of the need for self-reliance. I think hunting, foraging, uh, just being able to take care of yourself, little things that people don't think about, like maybe I should have some cash on hand. Well, of course, in COVID, nobody wants to touch cash, but maybe I should have a pantry with a, a little bit extra food in here. Know how to wipe my bum, like without needing toilet paper. No, it's amazing. Uh, Anchored Outdoors has really picked up because exactly that. People are, I've had lots of people reach out to me and go, man, I always kind of judged you for getting your own food, like girlfriends of mine who don't hunt. And and they're Mm. saying, now I wish that I knew how to feed myself because, because I really realized during all this that, you know, they're saying that they don't realize how they don't know how to feed themselves. It's it's a scary thought how many people don't know how just simple basic things they they just don't know because they haven't had to know and it's 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 almost seen as like uh, like back in back in after World War II when it was seen as like passe to to make your own food make your own bread and you know it was cool to go buy processed food and buy things from the store it, it, it's sort of like we haven't left that yet and we are a little bit but it's now becoming. Yeah, it's not seen as a bad thing to be able to take care of yourself and know how to do these things. I mean, I, I do still get looks a lot <laughs> when I'm picking weeds out of my neighbor's <laughs> gardens and stuff. But, but yeah, no, people think I'm a nut job. But um, but then after they kind of laugh at me, they say, oh, hey, are, are you doing a course on foraging? Like, we'd love to learn what, what you're doing and why you're doing it and so that's really cool, and and there is a, a lot more openness to, to to it, and being able to take care of yourself. Yeah. So speaking of which, circling all the way back around, what are you making for us next on Anchored Outdoors? Uh, I have a yogurt video. So just showing you how to make yogurt super easy, um, quick. If you have a little bit of yogurt in your fridge, you can make it. No special tools required as well as a chickweed falafel recipe. Ooh, your dips are so good. good. Yeah. Oh, everything I've made that you've, that you've put up has just been outstanding. Awesome. Yeah. I, I, I enjoy doing it. It's, it's, yeah, it's really, really fun to, to be able to do it. It pushes me to, to, to look around a little bit more at, at all the stuff and be like, Oh, maybe, maybe, you know, I've never done falafels with chickweed. I've done them with, you know, mint and parsley and cilantro and all that kind of stuff. But like, Oh yeah, they were, they were actually way better at chickweed. So, yeah, oh, isn't were. it the most beautiful "quote unquote" weed? Oh, I love it. I mean, Absolutely I munch on it. it when I'm outside gardening. I welcome yeah. it in my garden because I use yeah. it in everything. Yeah, and it's funny too. Once you start looking at all the food that's edible that's growing around, you start realizing that I think there. I, I mean, I don't. I don't know this for sure, but it sure seems like there's a lot more food that is edible than 
is poisonous. Yeah. Like the, the, just looking around, you know, so much food is edible. That's just sitting there growing like the flowers you grow in your garden. So much of it's you can rip the flowers off and throw it in your salad. So much more healthy than, than food you're buying in the grocery store anyway. Yeah, I know it's fresh. It just it's not doesn't have any pesticides on it. It's amazing. I love <laughs> I love when people uproot their weeds to replace it with, you know, imported seeds. I, I don't I know. <laughs> Everything that grows in my garden is edible. Every single thing. It you can eat it. And she's got a lot of garden space. And she yeah. picked up a bunch of lumber and we're making even <laughs> more gar- I don't even know if we're gonna have a yard anymore. <laughs> No, I'd be. Yeah, you're raising those beds, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, I've been growing, I've been growing potatoes in the uh, potato bags, and it's not working out. So we're putting in a few more raised garden beds so we can grow some potatoes. Cool. And other stuff too. So. (laughs) Well, I can't wait to see it. All right, you guys. Well, um, I have absolutely dragged this on a long time. Thank you for being so patient. Do you have anything that you would like to add or to ask me? I don't think so. Well, now we're in the spot, eh? Oh, no, <laughs> no, no, I'm good. If you guys say no, April, we're done. <laughs> no, it's been great, April. Thank you very much. Had a lot of fun with this. Yeah, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. And uh, look out for Travis and Tiffany on the website. And um, I'll include all the links about things that we discussed in this episode. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next time when I sit down with Kelly Gallup. Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern, presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.